This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, November 19th, 2021. On your public radio station, KUAF, I'm Kyle Kellams. Spending time with music and coffee this Friday. Later on our show, a few minutes with Jennifer Jolly, a composer who will be on the University of Arkansas campus Monday. And then Willie Carlisle will talk with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis about singing, songwriting, and more. First up, appropriately, coffee. The title of America's Best Barista officially belongs to Andrea Allen. Andrea is the co-founder of Onyx Coffee Lab, whose newest location is in Johnson. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore visited the new location to interview Andrea about what got her interested in coffee, preparing for the Barista World Championship in Milan, and the one competitive project she takes on that she's admittedly mediocre at doing. Andrea Allen never really planned on doing anything besides making coffee. I didn't do anything before coffee. No, I'm just kidding. No, I mean, when I was in high school, I started going to coffee shops here in um, northwest Arkansas because I thought it was cool and I liked uh, sweet drinks. So I just, like, something I started doing. And when I graduated from high school, my first thing was to, like, just get a coffee job. And so that's what I did, and I love serving people. I love making drinks. I love doing things with my hands. And so I just love doing it and I never stopped. Andrea and her husband, John, founded Onyx Coffee Lab. And almost immediately, she started competing in barista tournaments. And for us, we Onyx was a new company at the time and we were looking for a way to help show the coffee industry that we were producing really great coffee. And so being from Arkansas, it's not always easy to like knock on the door of cafes in LA and say, hey, we have great coffee, you should try it. Um, so John encouraged me to go and I started doing it and I just really got hooked. I'm a really competitive person by nature. And so I was just wanting to, to do it and to do well and to I love making coffee. I love talking to people. And so it really hit all of my skill sets. So I kind of just got hooked and kept, I didn't even have the world competition in sight. I mean, just making it there is insane. Um, but over time, like I started, I got better and I've been to the U.S. competition like five times and I finally was able to win that in uh, February of 2020. And so, yeah, the world competition has been uh, delayed several times because of COVID, but it finally happened, and it was amazing. Judging coffee seems like it can be subjective. How can you objectively decide whether or not a barista and her coffee is the best in the world? So basically how it works is everyone follows the same setup and the same rules. You have 15 minutes to serve three different drinks to four sensory judges. So you make an espresso, an espresso and milk, and then a signature drink, which just has to be espresso focused. So you're being scored on how the drinks taste, what your knowledge of them is, um, and then how the judges agree with what you say they're going to experience. So if I tell them like this espresso is gonna have qualities of rose, acidity like orange, you know, sweetness like a dark chocolate, they need to like drink it and say absolutely yes. And that's how you score score points. Um, and then they also are evaluating your presentation. So they're usually looking for someone that's like a representative of the coffee industry, someone that is like um, presenting innovation, someone that is like just ha has forward thinking ideas. Um, for coffee, a lot of our industry watches the competition. So that's where tons of like ideas come out of and just like, it ends up becoming like the thought leader of the industry. And so 
basically um, inside of those rules, you can do a ton of stuff. So it's like your own take on all of those drinks, um, your own, you can use coffee you roasted, you can buy coffee from someone like, I mean, you can really like do all kinds of stuff. And so that's kind of like what, what is being looked at. And then as you go through the different levels of competition, so from a regional to a national to a world competition, like the level of drink quality, coffee quality, presentation skill sets, and then the judges like desire to see those be like above and beyond and creative and innovative, like just continues to like get higher and higher. When you think about the, the first coffee you made when you think of the competition in 2014 compared to where you just were in Milan in 2021, what has changed in the way that you make coffee and what has kind of been foundational in the way that you continue to make coffee? Wow, no one's ever asked me that question before. That That's really cool. I mean, I think when I first went to a competition, I took a coffee that we had in the shop that was really good, and I made it to my best of, the best of my ability. I think it was a really great coffee, and my drinks were really good. But over time, first of all, coffee has fundamentally changed. So there is an incredible um, focus on really small lots of coffee that are extremely um, cared for. They're intentionally picked and processed to like create different kinds of flavor experiences. And so that like part of the industry has grown um, incredibly. Um, My first competition, I used uh, honey processed coffee. And then after that, I used natural processed coffees. And in 2014, I was one of the only, if not the only person using a not washed coffee because that was what was being, um, it wasn't popular. It was looked down upon as, um, as like a processing method. And so, so like the entire industry of coffee has completely changed, but then my skill sets have changed a ton too. So just being able to like take a coffee and prepare it in a way that is, really good that um, has distinct characteristics that can be described well so that the judges can like agree with me wholeheartedly Um, and then just like making like really really good drinks I know that sounds really funny but in competition sometimes the drinks can score really well but they don't taste that great because they're following this kind of score set rubric so for me my goal always is to have drinks that like anyone could try and that they're incredible I also this year specifically had a big focus on everything I did on the world stage could be recreated by almost any barista in a coffee shop. So simplicity was a big like focus for me this year of just like, you don't have to be this like, have these insane tools or insane skill sets to make great coffee. It's like more about thinking through like flavor, preparation and how that affects like flavor experience and then just like excellence in preparation of coffee. The U.S. Championship was held in February of 2020 and of course we know what came soon thereafter. The World Championship was on a definite hiatus but then in July the announcement came that the competition would be in October three months. Andrea says she was spending around 40 hours a week preparing and perfecting her presentation and skills. Well, I was surprised when I started practicing for Worlds because I hadn't lost a ton, which is great because um, between U.S. and the World competition, I mean, the pandemic has just been insane for every everyone, period, and then much less like 
uh, hospitality and food service has been crazy. So I was not just refining my skills that whole time. I was like doing all kinds of stuff to help our, our business and our team uh, just and our community continue to like uh, go forward. And so, um, yeah, when the competition got announced, I was like, wow, I haven't actually even really done anything on this since since the U.S. competition. So, yeah, there, I was a little rusty to start with, but not not as bad as I as I thought. And I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to put the amount of like time and energy and love into it as I normally do. But it turned out that I had plenty of time. And um, yeah, the results were awesome. There's a link to her 15 minute presentation at the World Barista Championships at our website, OzarksAtLarge.com. And it is absolutely mesmerizing. Andrea came in second place in the tournament. So when she isn't competing in barista championship tournaments, what does Andrea do to get away from work? A reliable source told me that you have a drink on the menu that is named after your horse, that you have a horse. Um, can you talk about, can you talk about what it's like to like have a life outside of work in so much that you have a horse? <laughs> what is life outside of work? No. Um, that's really funny. Yeah. My horse's name is Alfie, but when we first got him, we, my mom could never keep his name straight cause we've had all kinds of horses over the years. So she would call him Mo or she would call him Jack, which are other horses that we've had. So I just started calling him Alfie Mo Jack. It was like just any name we could think of became his name. And so no, it's, it's really fun. I mean, uh, I think everyone struggles with work-life balance. So for us, I mean, we just, like, want to do a great job at work, and then we want to go home and, like, have our own life. And we have two daughters who are, like, amazing that are, like, a huge uh, blessing and focus in our life. But, yeah, I ride horses, and I love them. And for me, I obviously am a competitive person, and I'm a very, like, active, energetic person. So I need to have things that are outside of work that I can work really hard at and be completely mediocre at that don't affect my family's livelihood. And so that's how horses function a little bit for me. I love them and I train my horses and I take them to competitions and I usually get last. And it's really good for me to have something that's like just a a huge work in progress, but that doesn't really have any, um, actual, uh, matter in, uh, yeah, in, in my work life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Training your horse is not going to impact your bottom line, right? No, not at all. And so, in fact, if I was um, relying on that as my livelihood, I um, it would be a sad state for my family. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's it's just a fun hobby. What is it about horses compared to like, you know, having a dog that you walk on a regular basis? Like, what is it about horses specifically that like... Oh, God. You, you talked. You had him as a kid, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, is, is that part of it? Is just that like you grew up with horses and and you continue to love them, or? It is. I started riding when I was five with my mom, and I have ridden my whole life and had lots of different horses over the years. And I just have a connection with them. I really know how to communicate with them, and um, I just I don't have a lot of in that way and so I like just love getting on them and like running across the field and like just doing stuff that makes me feel awesome and like just knowing I have like a partnership with a horse and the horses also tend to like me which is great um I think one of the (laughs) this is a random thing but 
dogs tend to like lots of people. So like you don't have to be the dog's number one for it to be friendly to you. But horses are very specific. So it's like to have a to have a large animal like that actually like you is is like a really fun kind of thing. So I think for me it's just all of those things combined. It's an earned friendship. It's an earned friendship, yeah. This is a funny story too. So the shop we're in right now, this is actually built on the footprint of the house that I grew up in. And like these, some of these fields that you see around here, I have ridden my horses in like since I was like five years old and I periodically ride my horses over here and still ride even though it's become like a development. That new location Andrea mentioned is called Well Met Cafe in Johnson. There's plenty of parking available on site for your car or your horse. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Earlier this month, Airship, a Bentonville-based coffee roaster and distributor, brought Maria Paula Rojas, the lab manager for one of the company's coffee producers, Selva Coffee in Costa Rica, to northwest Arkansas. Rojas joined Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth in studio to talk about creating sustainable partnerships between roasters and farmers and the future of coffee production. All right, Maria, thanks for being here and thanks for chatting with me today. I appreciate it. So you can tell me just a little bit about uh, your relationship with Airship and, you know, how you came to be here right now. Oh, thank you. I'm here because I really want to know a little bit more about the consuming part because we are so close with the producers. We work with around 95 producers in all Costa Rica area, not just from Tarrazu, who are mo- one of the most well-known regions in coffee around the world. So we have been working with Airship for two years now. We really care about relationships and to connect producers with roasters, because we think that the world deserves to know uh, their work also they have like amazing coffees yeah and why why is it important to have that relationship and, and what goes into making uh, a good partnership or good relationship between a coffee producer and grower and a roaster yeah i think producers are very good at their work also roasters are like making all the magic happen in coffee, because coffee has like a many flavors, uh, many profiles, so that is so important for us. Also, with this project at Selva, producers can get uh, have like a more colonies that is our currency, uh, and they can invest more in their projects and their productions. So roasters help us to give them like a. Uh, add more value to their product. And then, you know, s- coming from Costa Rica and being in Arkansas, did you know anything about about Arkansas or about the coffee culture here? Like, how is it different? So different. <laughs> yeah, it's so different because uh, I have been just in New York City, not in that side of the country. Mm-hmm. So I love the way that people here loves coffee and they appreciate our coffee. Like many people that was at Airship uh, was so surprised that I came just from Costa Rica to here. Yeah. And then, you know, when you're meeting with people and getting to talk about coffee and about the production of it and, and just like 
the communal aspect of it? You know, what draws you to coffee? What What is important about it to you? What do you love about it? Uh, many things. Uh, I born in a little town in Tarazu. The name is San Pedro. It is like a very little town who are like in the mountains of Tarazu. So my family have been growing coffee during 100 years. So my dad is also a coffee producer. So I am so involved in the producer side, and I, I know their reality. Also, I can help another uh, producers to sell their coffee to those amazing roasters. Yeah, and then, you know, knowing so much about the production side of it, I think here we don't really think, you know, we, we go to the coffee shop and we, we get a coffee, and we don't really think about this is an agricultural product that that comes from a place and that people make and produce, and it's their livelihood. Um, you know, what do you want people here to understand about that relationship and about sustainability when it comes to coffee? Yeah, um, I think coffee production means hard work. The producers have been working in a, with a lot of challenges and climate challenges, uh, money challenges. So I think agriculture sometimes... Uh, people doesn't appreciate uh, agriculture things or really we are like in, in a very different country or Costa Rica is like a very different country. Things are very expensive there. So yeah, producer has been working with a lot of, of things that I am so happy that people here appreciate our coffee and appreciate that Costa Rica has like potential with this product. And then from your perspective, what do you think coffee production or, or consumption will look like in the future? You know, what, what needs to happen to make it sustainable or how do you see it growing? I hope that many people learn more about specialty coffee and appreciate more. So producers can grow more and they can invest in their productions. One like common thing for us is we are able to producers to share with roasters like directly. Uh, they can share their knowledge and yeah that's important part and I see more young people and women's uh, are in the future of coffee because more young people in Costa Rica are getting involved in the coffee production. They go to college, they get that major or whatever, and they came again to Tarasu to help their families. So they change their minds. Um, they're helping their families uh, to be like, um, to try to have like more innovation in their productions. So, yeah. Very nice. And then can you just break down, like, when you talk about specialty coffee, for those of us who maybe don't, <laughs> no, aren't, like, yeah. well-versed in the world, can you kind of break down what that is and, and what it means? Okay. Um, specialty coffee, uh, usually the producers uh, pick just the ripest cherries. It is like a very homemade process. They dry the coffee with uh, sun dry or some of them use like uh, machines to dry the coffee and they usually do like 
different process like wash process, honey's process, natural coffees, anaerobic. Yeah, it is like a so homemade product and our producers really cares about quality. The result of that coffees are like a very different flavors, uh, very different profiles that you can find. And then is there anything that you want people here in Arkansas on this side to know about coffee production or about your work? Um, you know, is there something that you want to say to them? They should visit Costa Rica <laughs> and came into the farms and uh, know all these amazing producers that we work with. They are so humble people. They are always open to share with you uh, their knowledge. Um, uh, say, I am so thankful about Claire, also Airship. They have been so kind with me, and I feel at home with them. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was Maria Paula Rojas with Costa Rica-based Selva Coffee, talking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. Okay, we've had our Friday double shot of coffee. Stay tuned for back-to-back music. In a moment, Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis talks with songwriter Willie Carlisle. After that, composer Jennifer Jolly discusses writing music for ensembles and why the past 20 months have not been great for that. In keeping with today's theme of two, quick update on the two soccer teams in northwest Arkansas seeking a deep run toward a national championship. Last night, the John Brown University women's team blanked Friends College in the first round of the NAIA National Tournament. Tomorrow, JBU meets Cumberland's in the second round. That's at noon in Salem Springs. The Arkansas Razorbacks are playing Virginia Tech tonight in Fayetteville in the second round of the NCAA Tournament. A win tonight propels them to a Sweet 16 matchup Sunday afternoon in Fayetteville. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering daily activities, various living options, plus wellness facilities, aquatic center, and spa services. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, presenting American singer, songwriter, and actor Lyle Lovett in concert at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs, Wednesday, March 23, 2022, at 7.30 p.m. A limited number of reserved seat tickets are now available at theauditorium.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Next week is Thanksgiving holiday week, and there are a number of Friendsgiving celebrations happening. One that takes place Wednesday night in Fayetteville features a trio of folk and country singer-songwriters who all have ties to Arkansas. Chris Acker recently released his new album on Garhole Records, a Fayetteville-based label. Bonnie Montgomery is an Arkansas native and was named the 2020 Entertainer of the Year by the Arkansas Country Music Awards. And Willie Carlisle has called Northwest Arkansas home for a number of years. All three will perform Wednesday night at George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville. Willie recently stopped by the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio at KUAF to sit down with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis to talk about the show and to catch us up on what he's been doing during the past couple of years. 
How do you begin uh, in the last year? I've moved three or four times. I was out in Hawkeye for a while. I'm down in Prairie Grove now. I spent a little time in St. Louis. Spent a little bit of time in an intentional community in central Arkansas called Meadow Creek, too, a really wonderful place. In the meantime, managed to uh, make a new record that is in the can. It's coming out next year to start working with a booking agent and also to um, start with a record label. I'll be on free dirt records for the foreseeable future. What does that mean for your music now? Well, I always want to tell people that that a record deal is not the same as it was like when Elvis got signed, right? And obviously I'm not Elvis. This Free Dirt is a really old and well-respected folk music label. And uh, the reason they were on my radar at all was because they'd worked with uh, Utah Phillips, this fantastic anarchist folk singer that I knew about for a long time, who was really politically active and and coined this great phrase um, that uh, a person should make a living and not a killing, which uh, is kind of their byline. And I met those guys years ago when I was traveling around in the van And I went to a square dance and literally was just a guy in Virginia walking into a square dance with a banjo, ran into them totally organically after they asked me where I had learned these square dance calls. And I was like, well, in Ozarks. And then we just kind of ended up having a nice long conversation about Ozark folk music and so on. And I didn't even – I had no clue that they were music (laughs) industry people. In folk and country music, the industry is really a lot of friends. Until you get to the grand old Opry and gatekeepers like that, it's pretty much just buddies hanging out, which is great. So you've played quite a few shows over the past year and a half of pandemic living. Uh, Some of them have been a little bit different from what we might have seen before the pandemic. Throughout those shows, has there been anything that you've really – that's been new about these performances that you've liked or an experience that really stuck out to you throughout this whole thing? Yeah. Well, so one thing that we did is we did a run of house concerts um, that was literally just people's backyards. Everybody got to set their own protocols. And this is this is in May. What I found there was that the stakes were really high for me and for audiences. Sometimes it was the first thing they'd seen in a while. Or when you ask me what I've been doing for the last year, it's like I'm, I'm back seeing an old friend here for the first time in a while, right? You and I are back yeah. to work, too. So what I found is that there was a lot more crying and a lot more hugging and a lot more like intensity in those shows. And I really came to value that because uh, it put this in more of the context that I believe that it is in, which is that it kind of feels like life or death a little bit. Do you feel like, you know, people being removed from the music for so long, like in seeing music again, do you feel like they come back to with a greater appreciation for what you're doing? what you're putting out there? You know, I, I hope so. Yeah. And, and also, I think that the knowledge that this stuff is local and regional, but also that there's a middle market for it or that there's, you know, that it's a little bit like local food or like solar energy or something, you know, is that it feeds a different part of you than looking at your screen does, than turning on the radio does, mm-hmm. to have it live in person and also in a context that is like really intimate. And, and because folk music and, and country music do so much work with history, I think that uh, we get deprived of that by, you know, holding a little glowing screen that's constantly mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to get pennies out of our pockets, right? Right. It's not microtransactional. It's a it's a macro transaction of the human spirit, which is the only publicly traded NFT that I'm bought into. <laughs> I can I can get behind that. 
So you have a show coming up in Fayetteville later this month. Tell us about this Friendsgiving. Oh, man, I'm so excited for this. Wednesday, November 24th at George's Majestic Lounge, starting around 7 p.m. It'll be myself with a full band. And uh, then also Chris Acker, who has a new record out on Garhole Records, our, our newest and coolest record label here in northwest Arkansas. The auctioneer said to the valet, that takes the cars to the garage The valley said I know that But did you know this Inside there's some caviar Caviar, 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 caviar With the smoothness of marbles Are the old sturgeon's pearls Caviar, 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 caviar The gumballs, the black seed, the taste of the unborn Rainwater is up to her ankles By the time the bus finally comes She gets on and looks at her socks What's on the Also, uh, Bonnie Montgomery. Uh, Arkansas folks, if you don't know Bonnie Montgomery, um, she School is yourself is everything that is good about <laughs> Arkansas country music. She was Arkansas Country Music Performer of the Year, I believe, a little while ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, she's also a trained opera singer, mm-hmm. and she just writes these incredible, powerful classic country songs in the style of like a Loretta Lynn or a Patsy Cline. Just effortlessly, and she makes it look real cool. And, and her uh, stage presence is really hard to beat. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't want to embarrass Bonnie, but she can really wear a leather jacket and, and cowboy boots. Uh, and not seem ironic about it. And it's not ironic, too. And she opens her mouth, and the, the real McCoy comes out. You know, she makes me feel like I'm playing dress up. I could talk a little louder. I could talk a little louder. Talk a little louder, I can talk a little louder, but I won't, but I won't. I can load up the pistol, I can load up the pistol, but I won't, but I won't. I can load up the pistol, I can load up the pistol, but I won't, but I won't.
essentially what we're kind of saying here is is by doing a show the night before Thanksgiving at George's is just saying like, hey, if you've got family, come, come with your family, bring your family. But if you don't have family and if the holidays are a hard time, like come and, and be a part of ours, yeah. you know, and that's really what I hope to hope in a night like this to be. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this will be one of the first times in Fable you've played with a full band in a few years, right? This would be the second time in you know, the second time in a couple of years. I love keeping it slim, you know. I yeah. like letting the songs do their own work. But something about working with a producer with a Grammy on his desk makes you realize that, oh my God, there's other incredible musicians that can make you better, you know. And towards that end, yeah, that's why I'm working on the full band set. Is because collaboration is good. Togetherness, the thing that we all miss, is good. Um, yeah. We need to raise the stock of the human spirit. So so who's in your band? Is it local people or is it people you've assembled from uh-huh. other places? Well, so we have, uh, of course, Grant Dobbin, who's been my bass player for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's playing bass and guitar and uh, acoustic guitar, singing harmonies. And then we'll also have Tim Patterson, and oh, okay. he's from that band State House Electric, right. um, really good local band. And he plays really fine electric guitar. Mm-hmm. One of the guys, is he's an architect by trade, and uh, I would say that he's really builds things from the ground up. It's no wang-dang-diddly. It's not solos and notes floating out in the middle of the air. It's like really, really grounded in uh, roots music type of uh, electric guitar playing. We have a couple special guests, too, that I will not reveal okay, yet. Okay, <laughs> okay. Well, I can't wait to see who they are. Uh, so you've got the new record coming out next year. What else is on the horizon for you? Well, by God, we're going to get back into the studio and we're going to make another one. We're just going to keep putting another one in the can. Already? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, the, you know, there is no rest for the wicked. And I don't know, when the muse sings, it's just fun to chase it. So... We're going to hopefully do a whole lot of work coming up soon. I've got some music videos coming out. I always like to tell people that uh, Spotify pays under a penny per play and YouTube plays a little closer to a penny. So those uh, YouTube subscriptions are always really useful for artists Mm -hmm. that you like. And, uh, yeah, I'm, um, I'm really excited to be back on the road, to be doing more regular touring. I do love to be in Arkansas, and it is very much home, but uh, spreading the joy of the region, you know, getting to learn folk music here and then taking it outwards has been really like one of the huge joys of doing this. So I'm, I'm looking forward to being back to that big time next year. Well, last kind words my papa said Last kind words my papa ever said If I die, if I die in that German war I want you to send my body, won't you send it to my mother, Lord If I get killed, if I get killed Please don't bury my soul I prefer you leave my body Or leave it for the buzzards, Lord Yeah, I went down to the depot I looked up at the stars Christ, some train don't come We'll get some walking done
when you see me coming across the rich man's field. If I don't bring you flour, I will bring you bolted meal. Yeah, the Mississippi River, you know it's deep and wide. I can stand right here and see my baby on the other side. I also am on tour in December with Dylan Earl all the way over to Colorado, all the way down to Texas, all the way over to North Carolina in December. So uh, if you're in one of those passing states that would pass through that route, give us a look. I think this would be the third or fourth year that we've done it. You know, you got to do sticky floors once a year is the way I, is the way I think about it is that like I like to think of myself as a performer that, that will perform in your elementary school and then at your honky-tonk at night and then at a sit-down concert the next day. As I edge in my career more towards like paid tickets and people sitting down, there is something, really not something, but a lot to be said to always going back to that room where um, uh, you could still get a bottle thrown at your head. Um, <laughs> and that is what the December run has become to me, is uh, getting mouthy and having good conversations, creating real public discourse to the best of my a little old ability and um, trying to hold space for um, entering a new community every night um, and trying to do that with grace and equanimity and God dang it, folk music. That was Willie Carlisle speaking with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis. Willie, Bonnie Montgomery, and Chris Acker will perform Wednesday night at Georgia's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville. Doors at 7. Tickets are $15. You can find out more at georgesmajesticlounge.com. And you can always keep up with Willie at williecarlisle.com. Monday night, the University of Arkansas Wind Ensemble and Wind Symphony will perform at the Faulkner Performing Arts Center beginning at 7.30 that night. The concert will include music from Jennifer Jolly. Jennifer is also an assistant professor of composition at Texas Tech. Jolly's works are often inspired by the world around us, from climate change to the Me Too movement. Yesterday, my musical interview partner, Leo Uribe, host of our Sound Perimeter Thursdays on Ozarks at Large, joined me to talk with Jennifer and with Christopher Knighton, Associate Professor and Director of Bands at the U of A, to preview Monday night's concert. Christopher told us the evening of Jolly's music, along with days of the composer working with students, has been in the works for a while. Ever since Knighton first heard a performance of Jolly's work, The Eyes of the World Are Upon Us. A friend who was involved in that performance told me about this piece before I heard it, and I had looked up a little bit about Jennifer's music and I don't think you've heard this, Jennifer. Sorry. <laughs> I have but, not. Um, I was very moved um, emotionally, viscerally by this performance and have wanted to perform this piece um, and bring her here to work with our students and introduce her to our colleagues and faculty for some time. We invited her here in the fall of uh, 2019, but she had another performance that same evening. So we agreed to try to do it the next spring which was the concert was scheduled uh, maybe six weeks after the pandemic shut us all down. We tried again the following semester and then the following semester, and it just kept getting pushed back. Jennifer, uh, I can't think of a greater compliment for a composer to hear that someone was so moved upon hearing a composition that they wanted to reach out and have you come talk to young musicians. Yeah, that's, that's quite an honor, Chris. Um, 
you never told me that story. So um, <laughs> thank you. Um, I just want to add to that. Uh, this really has been a long time coming. Um, he did reach out to me in the fall of 2019. Um, I'm a professor of comp or an assistant professor of composition at Texas Tech University. They're doing music of mine the same day. And I was like, I'll see you in six weeks. And it got postponed. Uh, I will say the silver lining of all of this is that um, I got to know Chris better for the last two years. Actually, we've, we've kept up communication. I've actually sent him my works in progress since then. Um, so I'm truly honored and I consider Chris a friend and um, a colleague and someone I trust with my music wholeheartedly. Thank you. So exciting to have you here, Jennifer, and to have this collaboration. And um, I was just wondering, I mean, I, uh, I know this has been in the works for two years, but it has been two very long years and the world has changed a lot. And I think that uh, I'm actually glad we're coming at this time in which these conversations about representation and diversity and inclusion are much more at the forefront of, um, of our doings. And uh, one of the events you're going to be leading is that panel conversation or conversation with the students and faculty and, and other guests on Monday. How has your life and your compositional style changed in the last year and a half? You know, to be honest, it was a huge struggle. I've had, um, I once had a student ask me if this has inspired me to, to be so creative during the pandemic. And as much as the composition lifestyle is so isolated, I said, absolutely not. It was a struggle. Um, I, you know, the reason why I'm a composer is I like making music with people together. That's actually where the word ensemble comes from. And I, I know I write the music by myself, but I actually don't. I always have friends I consult with and I always have my musicians. And in fact, it is such a joy and learning experience every single time I have a new ensemble play this. So even though the Eyes of the World has been performed before, I always learn something new with that collaboration. Um, I would say with the diversity conversation, it's always good to have a continual conversation conversation. We are evolving. And a lot has changed in the two years um, dramatically with specific like Black Lives Matter events and everything. Um, and I think we can do better. And I'm glad I have the opportunity to speak with the students and engage in a dialogue and a discourse and continue to have that discourse going forward. All right. As the non-musician in the conversation, I can ask the, the questions that only a non-musician or non-composer could ask. You have pieces that have been uh, inspired or influenced by, for lack of a better term, current events, uh, the Me Too movement, uh, climate change. And I'm curious how, if you can put into words at all, how that process works, if you are moved or troubled by something that is happening globally or nationally, how that eventually finds it into notes for an ensemble. That's a great question. It's actually something I have to explain to my parents who are also not musicians. Um, so for this specific piece, The Eyes of the World, um, I originally was asked to write a piece in honor of Jerry Junkett, who's the director of bands at UT Austin. And I was like, oh man, this has gotta be cool. I can't mess this up. It's about Texas and I didn't live at Texas at the time. Um, and then I read an article about, um, you know, the, the tower shooting that happened 50 years ago, like th they were having an anniversary. And as a professor, I couldn't stop thinking about it because I didn't feel safe. 
you know, and as an educator, I was like, I, I want to create a safe space for my students. I want to create a place of learning and a place uh, where it's okay to fail. That that's kind of my mantra. And so, you know, to tell the, the non-musicians and the non-composers out there, um, it's something I think about obsessively. And then I think of an outline musically of what I want to do. And then I sit at the piano and I hope something sounds cool. And eventually with my craft, like I expand it or I, I try to conform, you know, the guidelines. So um, in, in this piece, there is, um, there were 17 victims that day. It depends on how they count it because um, the first uh, person who was shot um, and uh, this person ended up not dying, but this person was very pregnant, like nine months pregnant and the baby died, um, unfortunately. So sometimes they count that person in, but, um, so I was like, I will have 17 individual voices. Sometimes they'll come in together because there's some pairs. Sometimes they will not, um, as a composer, what I tried to do was I'm going to be awesome. Like as a composer, I'm going to try to have these mixture of voices independently going for like five minutes. And I realized that's really hard to do. And also I, I got bored. So it only lasts for about like a minute and a half. But generally speaking, I think of an idea. I think of musically how I'm going to portray it as a metaphor. Um, music is the most abstract art form. And so I just try to focus on the emotion, which is what I think music does best. Jennifer Jolly, composer and assistant professor of composition at Texas Tech, will be here this weekend to work with students at the U of A, and she'll be here Monday night for the concert featuring the University of Arkansas Wind Ensemble and Wind Symphony. That concert, Monday night at 7.30 in the Faulkner Performing Arts Center on the U of A campus. We also talked with Christopher Knighton, associate professor and director of bands at the U of A. My partner in the conversation, Leo Uribe, is an associate professor of bassoon at the U of A and host of Sound Perimeter that you can hear every Thursday on our show. And more from this conversation will be on Sunday morning weekend. Ozarks at Large, that's Sunday morning at 9 on KUAF. Oh, and by the way, Sound Perimeter with Leah can now be accessed through all major podcast distributors. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. It's time for the annual KUAF and Friends Holiday Giveaway, your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters. Participants include Kalamas Plastic Surgery, Pearl's Books, Center Street Mercantile, and more. Winners announced on Friday, December 10th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration available at KUAF.com. Fayetteville Roots presents guitarist, singer, songwriter Richard Thompson for a solo acoustic performance this Saturday evening at the Faulkner Performing Arts Center on the U of A campus. The show starts at 7 p.m. with opening act Justin Peter Kinkelschuster. Tickets and more information available at FayettevilleRoots.org. This is Ozarks at Large. With me via Zoom is Courtney Lanning. That means it's time to review a film. Courtney, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, this week you're reviewing Zeros and Ones. Give me the basic premise of Zeros and Ones. I wish I could, Kyle. Um, I, I don't like to come on to a review and tell you that I, I don't know what a movie's about. But after watching this movie, I, I don't really know what it's about. <laughs> That's not um, a positive. No, it's, it's hard to make heads or tails of this entire film. Um, the, the summary that came with the review copy I got 
was something about an American soldier in Rome uh, as the Vatican is being blown up by an unseen enemy that threatens the entire world. High concept, but interesting. Uh, the problem is, through the 90 minutes that I've watched this movie, uh, it's too dark to really see much of anything. Everything is shot at night, and it's, it's just so very, very dark. Not in tone, just <laughs> in, in pure lighting. It, it just, it's hard for me to see what's happening. Uh, and Ethan Hawke is the main star of this movie. And really, the movie just seems like him walking around Rome for about 90 minutes, talking to people in a Christian Bale Batman voice, just very low and growly. Uh, and he just carries around a camera and records random things. Anything redeeming about zeros and ones. You know, I, I do have to give credit where it's due. Uh, to 70-year-old director Abel Ferrara. And I, he's directed uh, other hits before, like Bad Lieutenant. Um, and I know that he has a cult following of fans. Uh, I have to give him credit because he shot this movie in Italy, which was one of the hardest-hit countries by the pandemic, right. and he shot this film before the, the vaccine was released. So for a lot of the film, most of the characters are wearing face masks. Um, and... You know, having been on the set of True Detective when it was shooting there in Fayetteville, I understand that creating a, a TV series or a movie is, is very difficult. Creating one during a pandemic in one of the hardest hit countries, I can't even imagine. All right. Well, what other movies are coming near us? So the, the two big movies this week are, of course, the first one is Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, which has Paul Rudd and one of the Stranger Things kids and... You know, I'm excited about this movie. I've been waiting to see it for a while. Uh, I know lots of people had very strong emotions about the 2016 Ghostbusters. With Kristen Wiig? And it Wiig. looks like, right, yeah. the, the all-female cast. Yeah, I liked it. I know, well, it brings out a lot of, lot of strong emotions in Ghostbusters fans. Mm. Um, but I guess this new one is them trying to more steer the course of the film back to... The 1980s Ghostbusters. And this is a sequel, right? I mean, this this acknowledges Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and and all the the Ghostbusters from the 1980s? Yeah. Uh, yeah. To my knowledge, it focuses on Egon's family. And, uh, you know, even in the trailer, you can hear Dan Aykroyd's voice. Okay. All right. Uh, and then the, the other big movie coming out this week is King Richard, which oh. has Will Smith in it. And it's just the biopic about Serena and Venus Williams, the famous tennis players growing up. And Ghostbusters is only going to be in theaters, but this one's going to be in theaters and it'll premiere on HBO Max, just like Dune and Suicide Squad and oh, lots of other Warner Brothers pictures. Right. Courtney Lanning, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. I'm looking for the perfect landscape of her new western, The Power of the Dog. Jane Campion sent location scouts in Montana Shots from her native New Zealand. And they said, oh, I think it's a bit further south than here. And we thought, like, oh, OK. <laughs> if we fooled the scout, that feels pretty good. Our conversation with the acclaimed filmmaker and all the news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Weekend Edition, tomorrow morning from 7 to 9 on KUAF 91.3. And you can listen to us at any time, anywhere, by using the free KUAF app. 
The Amazium is collecting bikes Saturday through Wednesday for donation to Pedal It Forward NWA. New or gently used bikes for both youths and adults can be dropped off at the Scott Family Amazium during normal operating hours. That's 10 to 4 tomorrow, as well as 10 to 4 on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, 1 to 4 on Sunday. And yes, even though the Amazium is closed on Tuesdays, you can drop bikes off that day. By the way, if you do drop off a bike the days the Amazium is open, you can tour the current exhibit, Gear Up, the Science of Bikes. And the University of Arkansas cross-country teams will be running, not biking, in the NCAA championships tomorrow morning in Tallahassee. The women are ranked 7th in the nation, the men ninth. Both races will be shown live on ESPNU. The women's race scheduled to start at 9.20 tomorrow morning. The men will run at 10.10. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Oak Grove. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF, and KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. We're back with you Sunday morning at 9 for Weekend Ozarks at Large. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Timothy Dennis, Matthew Moore, Daniel Carruth, and Courtney Lanning. Courtney's film reviews can be found in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette at ArkansasOnline.com. Our show's theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Our regular Friday contributors, Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics and Becca Martin-Brown, the features editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, will return to our Friday shows beginning in December. Okay, please take care of yourself. Get rest when you can. It's a busy time of season. I'm Kyle Kellums. Talk to you again very soon.